Oh so, no. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Now oh, so it begins. So it begins. Oh, <laughs> Everything's on the record now. So oh, no. <laughs> okay, so Mark, I'm gonna I'm gonna read out your bio that is found in your magnificent catalog, which uh, presents a portion of your collection. Right. Uh, and it's called The Science and Engineering of Water. So here we go. Mark E. Andrews has been collecting books about applied science and civil engineering since his university days in the late 1970s. Although he is passionate about books, Mark is specifically interested in the graphics and drawings they include. He's a member of the Grolier Club and the Association Internationale de Bibliophilie. Mark is a graduate of the University of Waterloo and is a licensed professional engineer in the province of Ontario. He's the founder and chief engineer of Andrews.Engineer, a consulting engineering firm specializing in municipal infrastructure. Mark lives in his library in Toronto. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you, Nigel. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Looks lovely. You got a nice big window and a big, big tree in it out there. No library shelves in the back. In the background, oh. I'm, I'm actually at my work office today. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, it's funny. When we uh, met, or on one occasion we met via Zoom, you made a comment about the bookshelves behind me, and you said you couldn't believe there was some empty space <laughs> in it. That, that stuck with me. It still is. You can see there still is. And, and I think I'm still a little bit envious. <laughs> Yes, you're bulging at the seams, are you? Yes, yes. And, and it seems that no matter how many new shelves I add, I always get them filled up. So uh, <laughs> either you're adding your shelves too quickly or you're not filling them up quickly enough, one or the other. Yes. Okay, so not that it's either here or there, but we're both Canadian. And uh, I'd like to quote to start off with, a little little book that I picked up some some years ago, not sure exactly where, yeah. by someone called Terry Julian, who's also Canadian, and, and he wrote a little book called Book Collecting for Everyone, published in 1992 by Signature Publishing out in New Westminster, BC. So if, if you're okay with it, what I'll do throughout this conversation is I'll lay some quotes on you and get your feedback. That sounds like fun. And in terms of structure, let's start with you and collecting, then go to connoisseurship, then go to your specific collection, and then finally to the to the catalog. But I guess the first thing I want to say is uh, when you know when I thought it was thinking about our conversation, I pictured you as a little boy scuffing around on the street after a rainstorm, putting little channels through mud and leaves and pushing them down a water drain. Is, am I out to lunch there? Uh, no, I'm embarrassed to say you are absolutely bang on. 
And if it wasn't uh, if it wasn't streaks of mud that I was trying to get the water to flow through, it was trying to kick the snow out of the way and getting the water to drain through the snow banks instead. In other words, it was a year-round pleasure. You didn't just wait for storms. No, no, no. no. Okay, okay. So, if we're to believe that collections are a fraction of who put them together, why did you become an engineer? What is it that fascinated you about it? Well, you really have to start off with a hard question. I want to know who you are. No, 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 fair enough. It's a good starting point, Uh, especially because you hit the nail right on the head when you talked about me as a little boy doing that. Yeah, why did that interest you? Why, Why did you do that as a little kid, do you think? I suppose the beginning point was just an interest in seeing how things work and, and why they work, why they work the way they do, how you can play and manipulate things to make things happen the way you would like to do it differently and uh, maybe direct the water to go in a different direction. And, and that's fun to do. And I guess as I eventually grew up, I began to learn that there's a way to do that uh, in a more sustainable way that actually, uh, you know, is the way we develop cities and make places for people to live and the really fun part of that is that engineers do that through drawings that's how they communicate what they're doing so the little boy is kicking the mud around to make the water flow a certain way the so-called grown-up engineer has a way to do that with drawings to communicate back to contractors and other people how to actually do it and i think that's probably the foundation of where i come from and that's what led to that phrase you read in my biography about uh, book collecting. In large part, it's the illustrations and the diagrams that really catch my attention when I go through these books. So you were you loved the drawing aspect of engineering? Yeah, that that you know that would have come along the a little drafting? bit later. Yeah. yeah, maybe not so much the drafting aspect, but the uh, how to put the drawing together, how to how to take the concepts that you're thinking about and put them on paper so that somebody can understand them. Right. And that's what the drawings are for. And, and again, with, with that little boy, uh, I suppose these, these little drains, these drains were clogged and you wanted to clean it up and get the water down as fast as you could. I, th- I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'm just remembering somebody else that would have agreed with exactly your assessment because my mother used to complain, how did I get so dirty? And you were only outside for half an hour. <laughs> so really, you just like getting dirty. Well, maybe that's the bottom line. Okay, so if we fast forward a bit to university, was there, a, and you referenced the fact that you started collecting when you are in university, was there a moment when things changed for you from sort of like building a library like just basically accumulating books because you're interested in them to becoming a collector. Certainly there was that transition, but I I can't put my finger on a magic moment that it suddenly happened. There was some sort of a transition because initially it was books that I needed. Engineering students wouldn't recognize this today, but we needed textbooks back in those days. And then there was other books to supplement that. And then there was books from libraries. And eventually at home, I was beginning to collect my own little library just for work-related activities, which a lot of uh, that is still on my shelf here in my office. I still use some of that material today. So so yes, there was a transition from having those books that I needed for a work-related purpose, a professional purpose, 
to the concept of collecting for the sake of collecting. And that happened over a period of years, over a period of time. Right. So to start off with, uh, you basically pulled together a reference library. Right. To help you with your work. That's right. But then you must have gotten this idea, hey, listen, I should go back to what? Find out the origins of these ideas or, or what? In fact, I think the beginning point would have been trying to understand, and this is part of the work that I, I currently still do, a lot of the work that I do is trying to fix deterioration in existing infrastructure. And I found that one way to help me do that is to find a textbook that helps somebody design that piece of infrastructure back in 1910. So if I can find the textbook from 1910, that helps me to understand how they built it, which helps me to understand how to fix it today. That's part of the beginning as well of that transition. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, uh, a friend of mine is an expert on uh, cooking books, and there's a similar wish among, among people who are interested in food to find out how they bred or you know, a certain kind of apple for example, and you have to go back to early, early books that show you, you know, how you're supposed to husband them or, or crossbreed them or whatever it is. But, but, you know, talking about this, I realize I'm just looking over the camera here. I've got books on my shelf here in the office. I realize now talking to you, I have consciously kept the books that I need for work. Even if it's a 1910 textbook, I have consciously kept that out of my collection. It's two different things. And I'm not quite sure why I've done that, but I have. So you have two sets of books, one that is designed to function practically in your work life and then your other collection. Yeah, so there's the, the working reference library or the reference library for working as opposed to the book collection. Yeah. And, and, and I suppose that's natural because the book collection is engineering in general, civil engineering in general. It's not specifically exactly the work that I do day to day. What I like is the fact that uh, a lot of these older books are still relevant for you. Uh, absolutely. In, in fact, even some of the younger guys here in my office uh, who are extremely technical and digital savvy, they will still come back and reference some of the older books that I have because the older books still detail the first principles of how the calculations are done or what the principles are. And that's not completely obvious in the computer system because in the computer, you're just plugging in numbers. Somebody else has set up the algorithm in the background and you're not always sure how that was done. So the books still, still play a role. Okay, now, so let's get into what Terry has to say here. At the beginning of, at the actually the end of his introduction, he says, so a book is many things to different people, a means of discovering reality or escaping from it, a tool for acquiring skills, a mirror, an eyewitness, or a cobweb blower. Indeed, if society decided to ignore books, it would commit cultural genocide. So what is a book to you? <laughs> well, that's a little bit of a profound statement. Uh, I think maybe I would add something to that and say that there is a certain component of this, which is the pleasure that you obtain, that yeah. the pleasure that's associated with 
with having the book, both in terms of the information or the fact that you have the content that is the book. There's also a certain pleasure of just holding the book. We all know that. And, and you pick up a book sometimes and it just feels so right and so good because it's the way the cover is made and the paper. We all know what it's like to, to feel that paper and to smell it and to hear it crinkle. So there's that pleasure aspect as well, which I don't think we want to discount. But I, I, was, I would say going back to uh, the discussion about uh, illustrations and drawings, that if there is pleasure in the book for me, it's the, the fun of just looking at those diagrams and trying to understand what somebody was trying to illustrate or trying what, what ideas they were trying to convey through the illustration. For me, that's, that's the pleasure I take from them. So I guess at a starting point, that's my definition of what the book is about. It's the skill with which they've communicated their ideas with diagrams and drawings. Is that it? Yes, yes. Admiring the skill? Yes, yes. But it's not so much admiring the concept they're trying to convey, because right. maybe we already knew that concept, or that concept is relatively straightforward. But suddenly somebody's thought of a different way of conveying that as much in a much simpler way. That's what's interesting, the fun part. I do think that there's a certain genius in simplifying an idea to the point where it, it still captures everything in, you know, in the words, but that you're able to express it. It's the same sort of thing, isn't it? Right, right. I'm certainly not an expert at this, but if somebody writes a paragraph and conveys some very interesting ideas in that paragraph, and somebody else can come along and write it in one very short sentence and convey all of that same, that same sense... That's a, that's a pretty amazing thing. And, and I, the same thing can happen in illustrations. Okay, now uh, getting at the little boy in you, here's Walter de la Mer. Books, there may be upon this shelf wherein lies hidden your very self. That's sort of what I was trying to get at. Right. I, I guess that's what we've been talking about. You know, I, I go back to the illustrations and, and just the, the fun and, and pleasure of, of looking at those illustrations. I, I suppose somebody could sit in, at a book and, and reread the same poem over and over again for several hours. Yeah, yeah. Probably I can do the same thing with the illustrations. That then take you back to me picking the gravel on the street trying to get the water to drain. Yeah. It's just the pleasure of seeing how it was done, I guess, partly. Yeah. yeah. So to start off chapter one, why collect books? Terry mm -hmm. says, your choice of books is an expression of your personality, which should enlarge your life, bring you a better understanding of the world and an increased sense of time and history. So a lot of the books you collect are quite old. And I guess partly what he's getting at is having these books, does it transport you back? I, I, I don't know if it necessarily transports me back, but it grounds me because I know that I'm not sitting here doing something new and different. Things have all happened before. There's a long continuity. There's a, a thread or, or a string that ties this all together. The books basically prove that and reinforce that. Yes, he says here, books convey ideas, 
scientific and practical books open up new vistas to the collector. You collect what fascinates you. Right. The, the quote said that it opens up new vistas. One of those vistas is probably being able to look back into the mindset and the thought process of the person who was putting that information together in the book back at that time. You know, a very simple, simple application of that, as I said, is that if I'm trying to understand how to fix a piece of infrastructure today, it's very useful to go back and to see how it was designed in the first place. Right. So in a broader sense, it, it's a way to go back and to see how things evolved. And, and ironically, I don't know how many times I have been reminded of a phrase that my father used all the time or very often, that there is nothing new under the sun. And it's, it's amazing the time I can, times I can go back into a book and see an illustration. And there's a concept being shown back in 1580 that is no different than the concept today. And, that, and that's easy to forget and to overlook that because we think, oh, this is 20, 2022. We, we, we have a different outlook. We know better now. We don't necessarily. We know just as well. Maybe we don't know as well sometimes. And, and the books show that. So it's humbling. Absolutely. <laughs> but you must know where your real interests lie in terms of collecting, a matter of emotion as well as intellect. You are trying to add to your sum of knowledge or your feelings. A book should be bought in order to bring it into your life not simply to put it on a shelf. The books you collect best are those that are closest to your heart. Uh, yeah. I'll just continue. Okay. A book collection gives a deeper meaning and interest to living. There is nothing in daily work which cannot be made more interesting or more useful through books. They are a means to proficiency in every task. They are inexhaustible sources of pleasure. They can give you deepened sensitivity to ideals, to beauty, to sensibility, to the best emotions of life. Every type of book, religious, scientific, practical, philosophical, biological, historical, fictional, conveys some inspiration, wisdom, or knowledge. Isn't that nicely put? It is, and I, I think very well put. And I wonder if sometimes as a collector, we might tend to forget that that's, that's what provokes us to do what we do. But it's very true. I, I think I would add to that, that it's as if he is speaking there in the quote about the books, the content, the individual books. And, and absolutely, I think that that is a very fair statement. Then there's another level is when you look at all those books put together and now they're a collection of those individual books. And I think for me, that is where the greatest pleasure comes from is now that I can see those, those books on the shelf together because the group themselves now mean something which is over and above what each individual book is saying. And that's exactly what you put in the very first phrase in your book, in your catalog. That's, That's right. exactly what you put. Right. Yeah. It's about putting together something new or to recognize something new 
that grows out of the fact that you've been able to bring all of these individuals together. Yeah, you're creating something new. Right. There's an analogy that comes to mind because I've, I've encountered this many times going into uh, various art galleries. If you can visualize in your mind's eye a black and white photograph portrait of somebody, not, not big, you know, just an 8 by 10 glossy kind of photograph of a portrait or a portrait of somebody, uh, maybe with a mat framed in a wooden frame, a very typical, there's millions of these things everywhere and you can visualize that maybe the person in the portrait has a hat on maybe they don't might be a woman might be a man i I don't know it's just a portrait imagine that hanging on your on your wall you've got that portrait and now imagine going into an art gallery and you turn the corner and walk into this big room with a big wall and there are 150 of those portraits all assembled as a group on the wall and you stand back and you look at that collection, that group, you have an entirely different impression of that as a piece of art on the wall. If you walk up really close, you can find that one individual portrait that I just talked about. But when you stand back, you don't see 150 portraits. You see a big collection, a new kind of art, something different that's on the wall. And I think the book collection is the same thing. It's just perhaps not as obvious to some people, but it's the same concept. You know, Mark, uh, this was exactly the kind of experience I had. I was about six months ago. I went to Auschwitz and Mm. I saw a couple of exactly what you're talking about, sort of images of people (laughs) outside on these panels on their own. But when you go inside to the museum, there's a huge, there's a big long wall of all sorts of people who've looked, they actually got bruises on their faces. And together it was, um, uh, again, I'm, I'm, I don't want to get too profound here, but it was, it was hugely moving to see them all together and the impact they had. It's interesting how that happens. So, um, so what, what has hit you sort of most strongly about what you've done with the collection? Is there something that, you know, is there some revelation that came from pulling them all together? Is there some insight? Yes, because start pulling them together. I'm going to go back to the analogy of all of these portraits hanging on the wall suddenly realized there was some gaps and holes in the wall. There were some portraits that were missing. <laughs> yes, that's And, um, you know, it, it almost became the uh, exception that proved the rule that, yes, this was a collection. It's proven to be a collection because now I can see there's something missing. That was fun. It, that's and, paradoxical. And it, it turns out, for example, one of the things I realized I was completely missing, I have all these books on the shelf related to engineering, and, and you can imagine there's French and English and German and Italian and not a single book in Spanish. And I thought, son of a gun, why is that? There was one, one point. Uh, was oh, sorry, Mark, is that, why, is that because what? No work was going on in Spain or what? Uh, you, you know, I, 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 I don't have a good reason why. It was a conscious decision, though, that now I look for that material. And uh, after 15 years, I have maybe 30 books 
that are a match to my collection that are actually published, maybe a bit more than that, that are in Spanish. Half of the books that are in Spanish are actually produced in the New World rather than in Spain. You know, I, I probably some historians understand what's going on. But, uh, obviously, there was not as much production of Spanish material, material in Spanish as there was at the same time periods in French, English, Italian, German. So, so I, at, you know, at that point, I identified the fact that I had no books in Spanish. Every single book on the shelf, every single book in my collection was authored by a man. An even bigger struggle to fill that gap. And I also had no material published in any of the uh, Arabic countries, nor uh, from the Asian country, China and Japan in particular, unless they were Western books about China or Japan or Western books about the Arab world. So those are two more gaps that appear. And so what? This is a whole new kind of uh, terrain that you can explore. Is that it? And, and go after? Yes, yes, but not uh, not exclusively. It's not that I'm going to stop collecting everything else. No. Just focus on these. It's the idea of how to fill the gap. And it may be that the time will come, going back to the, the, the portrait analogy again, maybe there's some portraits that will always be missing. They were just never taken. But it's going to take time for me to work through that, to be able to say that. It seems to me what's of greater interest than sort of getting a geographical representation is to make sure that, you know, you find the first iteration of an idea and then follow that along. That's more important than, okay, I want representation from Spain. It, it isn't, is it or isn't it? It's a little bit of both. It, it's maybe not so much that I want represent, representation and, and I must admit, I, I didn't strictly think of it as geographical. Right. I was think my first step towards it was language. And of course, then that becomes secondary, it becomes geographical. And, and I think part of what made me come to that conclusion was if I go back and I look at what previous collectors have done, and we have bibliographies, technical bibliographies that people have done over the years, not, not a lot of it is related to engineering, but whatever is there, has always tended to focus on uh, America, United States, Britain, and then on from there. And, and, and a lot of that is because a lot of the books are published sort of in hand with the Industrial Revolution. So, of course, there's a lot of American and British material, which yeah. is English. And chances are the collectors are English. So I suppose it's natural to follow the language you're more comfortable with. I, I, I don't know. I'm speculating. If all of our thoughts are based on the fact that we think what we've got is a collection, but really we're only looking at English books, then it means we really aren't. It is not really a collection. You think so, eh? Well, it, it is. Oh, sorry. It is I mean, a, it's an English collection. Yeah, it's an English collection. My idea is to create an engineering collection. Yeah. Well, you want to trace wherever the ideas came from. Am I correct? It, yes, yes. And, and if it turns out that the Spanish were only using French technology, they decided they didn't need any books other than using French. I, I don't want to go too far down that road because I'm not a historian of technology. But what's the difference, though? Aren't you trying to collect the history of the technology? No. I, I, again, as I said in my bibliography, I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in the history. 
the books are not talking about the history. The books are the history. No, I, I understand that. Yeah. It's the ideas you're looking at, but, and it is the evolution, right? Yes, but as documented in the book. So it's not so much the, the actual con, it's not the, I see. the theory I see. so much as, as how is it documented? How is it put yes. together? Yes. Where is that string? And, and then more interestingly, how did this author help that author develop his theory? And we can see that in the books. Why is that not cross-pollinating with, with Spain, for example? Where are the books that correspond to that that came from Spain or came from Asia? That raises the question, uh, Mark, of do you have the scholar in mind when you're collecting? Because that's, very in, that's an interesting question, what was going on in Spain and how come there aren't more Spanish books? You know, that's for a scholar to look at, but you're providing maybe some clues and evidence for them. Right. You know, even if I'm not providing the clues and the evidence, maybe I'm at least doing something that's going to provoke the questions. Yes. Stimulate the scholarship. Yes. Yes. Okay, so let's move along to connoisseurship or what makes you pull the trigger and what makes you not pull the trigger. Uh, and let's move on to John Carter here with his uh, books and book collectors. In his introduction, he says, book collecting is at once the most various, the most sophisticated and the least income taxing of the major forms of connoisseurship. I guess what he's comparing, obviously, too, is the art world. Yeah. So I was going to say, I think there's probably some people that would disagree and say that uh, they could spend a million and a half dollars on a book. That's, they uh, would, but they would. But then you look at the Picasso going for 80 million. And yeah. Okay, <laughs> I guess it's relative. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So here he goes on uh, limitless potentiality for the expansion of interest. Uh, for the relating of unconsidered books to some instructive or attractive pattern of collecting. This is based on the threefold nature of bibliophily's appeal. For a book may appeal to the eye by its beauty or singularity of printing, illustration as, as what we've said, or binding. It may appeal to the intellect by the power, influence, or significance of its content, or it may appeal to the imagination, to the sense of the past, which is active in some of us, latent in all of us, the emotion evoked, the feeling that whether we care about first editions or not, Pope should be read in folio, Gibbon in quarto, and Jane Austen in small octavo, and to which aspect of this fundamental variety may attract the collector is added a third quality. And here he talks about the range of technical connoisseurship, which is what we just mentioned, um, as, as sophisticated, as esoteric, and as minute as could be demanded by the most exacting devotee of prints or silver, china, or furniture. So there's appeal to the eye and that that's a big part of it for you correct no no I, actually I, I made a couple of notes here 
In fact, no, because my mind, when he's referring to it, catches the eye in, in a, an artistic sense, and you like blue cloth or you like brown leather, whatever. He then goes on to talk about the intellectual content and being stimulated by that. I think I'm looking at illustrations not because they're pretty, but because of the technical content. So there's yeah. two different things there. I, I don't disagree. I agree. Those three things are important. And yes, I have books that are there because they have a fantastic cover. And I really appreciate the artistic content of that cover. Right. That's a different concept to me than looking at the technical aspect of what's being conveyed in a technical illustration. Yeah, I suppose the fact that an illustration is beautiful is just an added bonus. Yeah, it's a different level. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Mark. So why would you pull a trigger on one and not another? What's the deciding factor? There is no deciding factor. I think there's there can be many factors. Yes. Okay. And and it can be anywhere from the content of this particular book is so relevant to what I'm interested in. Automatically, I want that. Can you define in a short phrase what it is you're specifically interested in? I'm specifically interested in the uh, the techniques and methods of civil engineering, which is municipal infrastructure. So, so the the, the infrastructure that holds our uh, urban fabric together. So, I'm interested in that content, preferably when it is. The content is is provided through illustrations. So I, I, I think that begins to inform what the triggers are. So if a book has wonderful content but no illustrations, I might I might still be interested. But if it has both, then it's obvious. It's what you're fascinated by is the skill with which an idea is conveyed graphically. Yes. And you know, I, I would also like to say that, of course, I want to have books that are in nice condition, that are in good condition. But as you know, there are sometimes you see a book and you know you will never, ever see this book again in your lifetime. Right. And it's falling apart, but that's okay. And that's, again, part of the knowledge and research, and isn't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and, and you also know that you see a book and it is absolutely the book you want, but you're just not prepared to spend that amount of money on it. You know, maybe it's not a question that you can't spend that amount of money or you're unable to spend that amount of money, but you look at it and say, this book is not worth that amount of money because I can use that money to buy 25 other books that are equally relevant. There's a lovely quote from Michael Sadlier, the, the, the famed collector. He says, in nature, the bird who gets up earliest catches the most worms. But in book collecting, the prize falls to birds who know worms when they see them. <laughs> very true, very true. Okay, let, let's turn to your uh, collection more specifically and your beautiful, beautiful catalog, which listeners can order. It's on Abe, right? That's right. On, on Abe and is it Ex Libris? Ex, well, it might be on Biblio, too. I might have seen it oh, there. Biblio, sorry, that's it. You just have to, yeah, go to one of those book searches, right? Yeah. 
And the, the title of it is The Science and Engineering of Water by Mark Andrews. One of the things about book collecting is it really is an evolution. It's one thing leading to another. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. From the point of view of the content of that, of the catalog we're just referring to, you mean? Well, actually, no, just about uh, how your collection and collecting as, uh, like, for example, like I, I, I generally, I'm interested in, you know, as, as you know, late 50s, early 60s, Canada, economic nationalism, that sort of thing. But it's gone into, oh, I realized that an important designer uh, was responsible for designing an important magazine of the period. So now I'm interested in that because it it broadens things out. I wonder I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how how that may have worked for you. So, so I think in my case, so, so originally, actually, speaking of Canada, my beginning was collecting Canadian engineering, Canadiana. You know, right. I was interested in the canal construction, design and construction of canals, railways, bridges. So I, I was very focused on Canadiana. That was my idea. But of course, some of the books were published in England. That's one way it start, started to broaden. Also began to realize that the theory that was being used in Canada was actually coming from Europe or maybe the United States. So that opened things up a little bit more. And then Canadiana engineering is relatively finite. I can say I'll go back to the beginning of time and beginning of time is, I, I think I have a couple books from the very late 1700s, but otherwise uh, Rideau Canal and Montreal and Lachine Canal forwards, which means really it doesn't begin until, or depending which way you're going, it doesn't end until, you know, the very early uh, 19th century. So, so there's a certain limitation there. And, you know, it may, maybe part of the fact was that I saw that limitation, that I hit a wall and that's what made me look further afield, which is maybe a good thing because maybe if I was a European and I was worried about engineering in Europe, I wouldn't have recognized that wall because it was a wide open scheme. But certainly the Canadiana was the beginning and then that just began to open up into other, other topics and other fields that fed into that. And now I'm a little bit afraid to say that probably my focus is now engineering in general and the Canadiana becomes a relatively small part of that. So it's, it's sort of an ambition to go beyond the, the national borders. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, that's because you, d you figure you'd done everything you could do at that point. Maybe, but you know, maybe it's a characteristic of being Canadian. When you're Canadian, you yeah. tend to look you tend to look outside all the time, and so it was a natural thing for me to to do that. Okay, well, talking about segments of your collection, I'm just going to read the first paragraph from the introduction of your of your catalog. The collection of books presented in this catalog is part of my broader collection on applied science and civil engineering. Civil engineering includes the study of water, both at rest and in motion, and the construction of works to control it for the betterment of individual lives. As my collection increased, I realized that the earliest and most frequently published writings on engineering were Italian and focused on flooding, and the science of water. This realization was the seed from which this catalog grew. So 
this is another example of what you've said here, this new entity revealing itself to you. This, this was a realization that you came to. It, it, exactly, exactly. So just to keep things in context, I suppose, the phrase you, or the, the paragraph you just read from uh, the bibliography is referring, referring specifically to, to water and, and work related to hydraulics. Civil engineering is broader than that because it's also structures. And as time goes by, we get into railways and, and bigger bridges and, and bigger structures. I think what was going on in my mind as I was working backwards, trying to understand that overall evolution. And when we're talking about printed books, we're going back to 1500 or very late 1400s. There was no railways back then. There was no, there was no structural steel buildings back then. There was no reinforced concrete back then. So, so that's how I started piecing it together, was looking at the, the various components of how they grew to create the broader collection that I have that's the 19th century end of it, as opposed to the 15th century end of it. When I did that, I realized there is a unique set that all comes together, which is the beginning of the whole process, which is what that bibliography is. Right. And you chose this because what? It's like the origin? It's the beginning? The beginning, yes. It's the beginning, obviously, of hydraulics and, and the understanding of water and the science of water. But by the way, it's also the beginning of engineering in general. So that's why it becomes more interesting. Well, you could say that the Romans were engineers too. Yes. And, and even they, their, their focus was water-related, how to build aqueducts to get water for, for drinking purposes into the cities, how right. to control floods on the river. So even they were focused on water. And right. the earliest writings, it, it, you know, if I go back and say, what is the earliest writings on engineering? It is about water. Right. Um, and so what? Like there's scrolls and stuff like that that you're going oh, after, or you're not? You're starting no. with the beginning of the incunabula, correct? So yeah, the the, the incunables and and then what was being printed in the early 1500s, which was the Roman material that's now being printed. So right. I'm not necessarily interested in collecting Roman artifacts or whatever. I'm I'm just focusing on the books. And the books are now replicating what was being done by the Romans. Yes, and and I, it, it, just, it, it just dawns on me, I'm going back to what I said earlier about today, I'm trying to fix infrastructure in a city. If I'm trying to repair an old piece of infrastructure, if I can find a textbook from 1910 that yeah. helps me do that, that becomes important. By the way, when printing was starting and we're in the early 1500s, that's exactly what the Romans in the 1500s were trying to do. They were trying to repair the aqueducts. And in order to do that, they went back to the writings and said, oh, here's why that was being done that way. Let's publish that so we can all see it. And that will help us to move forward to repair these aqueducts. Right. So again, the advent of the technology of the book what happened was the, the engineers who were trying to reconstruct or repair stuff just said, we should print the stuff that, you know, whatever we have from the Roman times in books so that everyone's aware of what happened back then. I, I'm, I'm sure their first thought wasn't to print it, but their first thought was to find it and to consult it. 
Yes. Said, yes. Well, now that we've done this, this makes sense. Let's print it as well. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and here you reference again, engineers conceptualize and communicate exceedingly well through sketches and drawings. Diagrams allow engineers to express their ideas much like musical notation does for the composer. Complex ideas are reduced to standardized images that can be quickly read by those who know the language. These early Italian books clearly and boldly demonstrate this. The books are technically focused and yet visually beautiful in equal measure. You, uh, you, you know the most common question that book collectors have to answer. <laughs> have you read all these books? Yeah. We always, we always and get And of course that. you have, right? You have, no, Mark. No, because <laughs> it, it begs the second question. Mark, yeah. you have all these books in Latin and Italian and German and French and Dutch. How do you read all those languages? And I don't. And I, I don't read all those books. Whenever I'm asked that question, I always have the same answer. I, I don't read them. I just look at the pictures. That language is common through all of that time period. So if, if I take out Polini's reproduction of the work that uh, it, which he published in the, 18, uh, the 1700s, about the work that he, or the references he found from the Roman times, yeah. the illustrations that he has included are his interpretation of the illustrations that he's copied out of a manuscript. And it is equally understandable today as it was to him in the 1700s, as it was to the Roman that drew that at the beginning. That is a totally separate language that is continuous. That's quite something, isn't it? So that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we, we bring in Orwell here. It's about clarity of communication. The world would be such a better place if everybody was an engineer. It's funny, you know, when I was at university, I, like, I, just, don't, I just don't get you. I, I don't get engineers. Like they, they laugh at stuff. They laugh at stuff that's just not funny. Well, either that or your interpretation and definition of funny is a little bit out of whack one or the other. <laughs> Okay, now what I thought was very interesting here on page two was the books in this catalog are not about history. They are history. Its purpose is to tell the story of books that represent the day-to-day -day working tools of the scientists, engineers, and constructors of the day. And here's the value statement. From them, we can trace the development of theory and the work of the practitioners themselves. Right. That's what's valuable about your collection. I believe so. So, so the, the authors of the day are not writing a book about what has happened or their interpretation about what has happened for some reason. They are writing a book saying, here's how you can do it. Here's how it can be done. And if you need to do this in your city next week, here's a way to do it. Here's how you can do it. We can look at it today in a historical context, but it was not meant to be historical then. And, and I guess just to clarify, I, I do have some books that are history of engineering books. They may have been written in the 1600s. Again, here, a historical document about uh, or a historical book about 
how and why the aqueducts were built the way they were, why a dam was built where it was, or why a bridge was built a certain way. So there are a few books in there that are clearly a, a history book about something that had happened in the preceding time. So, so again, I, I, I will use that as the exception that proves my rule. Those right. few books are the history books. The rest are not history books. They are history. Well, hey, this makes sense coming from a practical engineer, doesn't it? I hope so. <laughs> you can use it. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, uh, it's interesting and informative how you, the, the first page of the, your, your catalog starts with an acknowledgement. It's your acknowledgements. I wonder if you could just talk a bit to me about Marie Corrie, who not only provided valuable input, but guided me through the maze of collations. What exactly does that mean? It means that I made the decision at some point that the oldest books in the catalog, uh, and I think I ended up just using the 16th century, there's detailed collations for each of those books. And there's standard formulas and approaches to document and, and people would recognize. Yeah, can you drill down on that? What do you mean? So every entry in the, in the bibliography has the pagination, number of pages and, and the structure. The collation is going right back to the signature count and identifying every leaf in the book. So that it's, it's, the, it's basically the information the printer had to know how to assemble the book. The, the signatures are on the, uh, typically the bottom right corner of the page. Right. The A, yes. A1, A2, so on. You were able to identify and find those and make sure, for example, that no pages were missing in your books. Well, yes and no, because the older the book, if we're getting back into the early 16th century, uh, it, it's not impossible that books were coming out you know, maybe only two or three at a time, and we'll find two or three that are very similar, and then I'll find another copy that somebody has on another library that's not put together exactly the same as the copy I have. You know, it's not it's not machine produced, it's not mass produced, so there are variations. So basically, what I was doing was documenting what my copy looks like, so that presumably in the future somebody else can pick up their copy and compare it to mine and see if it's the same as mine or see if mine is the same as what's at the British Library, for example. So going back to your, your comment, though, where, where Marie helped me a lot, she has a lot more experience with this process. Because these books are so heavily illustrated, they were not a simple matter of, of simply putting many sheets through the press. There, there was a lot of uh, manual work assembling all of these books after the fact. And how right. did that happen? How do we document that? And that became a little bit tricky. And uh, Marie helped me work through that. So, uh, which was helpful because it's in it itself, it's its own language. It has its own formulas and standards. So we wanted to follow that, but we also had to adapt it to the extreme irregularities that we were finding in some of these books. Okay, so how did you communicate what you found? Is it in the catalog or are you talking about? Outside? Yes, if you pick up any or look at any of the entries uh, for any of the books prior to 1599, you'll, you'll see the title of the author, the publisher, 
and then comes the collation. So if you look, go, go to page 34. Okay. And uh, it's Archimedes' book. The title is on the top, then there's a couple of illustrations. And then under the, uh, the photographs, you'll see the, uh, the imprint is Bologna. The printer was uh, Bonacci, 1565. And then the next line says 15 by 21 centimeters. Yeah. Vertical bar, and then it begins eight. That whole string formula there, the eight, and then a looks like a cross with a four A dash K four L six and so on. That's yeah. the collation. So this again is a language that bibliographers and catalogers understand that shows you exactly what? That shows you exactly what we saw in my copy of the book, flipping through it page by page. We saw an A and then we saw a two, three, and four, and then we saw B, one, two, three, four, then we saw C, uh, one, two, four, all the way up to K, one, two, three, four, and then L was a six-page uh, folio, or a six-page gathering, L, one, two, yes. three, four, five, six. So that's labor-intensive, isn't it? <laughs> it, it, it? It is labor-intensive, but there is a trick to the formula and understanding the process. And some of these became very complicated and that's where Marie helped me immensely to uh, figure out how we were gonna document these. This would be fascinating for a printer to look through. Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Okay, who else do you wanna single out just in, the, in our conversation? Um, what about the designer, Laura? because this book looks the way it does because of her. I, I guess the content is what it is because of me, but the way she presented it and makes this stand out, that is, that's definitely her. And you found her out in Alberta. No, um, I found her through Justin, who's in Calgary, because he published a catalog of the fishing book exhibition that was at the library, and Laura was the designer of that catalog. That's right. That's out in Alberta, isn't it? That, that's Alberta. But as soon as I saw Justin's catalog, I said, that's who I would like to work with. The designer is actually in Victoria. Laura's in, in Victoria. Oh, is she? That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Laura Minja. That's right. Okay. And just so we're clear, Justin, who's Justin again? Justin, the, uh, the fish guy in Calgary. Justin, what's his last name? So, so uh, Justin Hanish in Calgary is a friend who collects books about fish, but produced, a, uh, curated an exhibit, exhibition and produced a catalog about books about fishing, uh, Peel Rare Book Library in Edmonton. And you admired it and just, yes. I, I, I fell in love with this catalog as soon as I saw it. It, it is beautiful. It's uh, the big, big fish head on the front is so good, uh, isn't it? Uh, uh, yeah, no, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yes. So, so that was the connection that, that got me connected with, uh, with Laura in Victoria. I see. Okay. I'm trying to think of what else to say about the design itself. Is there anything obvious to you that? Uh... Okay, Mark, you're going to, hopefully you're going to love this because I, I have, of course, a couple of Landy bibliographies and the cover of the the it's boxed and the cover 
is the same very kind of dark powdery blue that you've used on your catalog. And I couldn't help but make that connection. Which one of Landy's books is that? Well, it's the greats. It's probably, and in fact, I the way I see this is that yours is a, uh, Robert Reed died six months ago or so, and your book came out about the same time. Your catalog, yeah. And he, he designed this great. Uh, oh. it's the same color. Oh, it's right. the same. It's very close. Nigel, Nigel, you know what? You're, I never. I love that kind of. Well, if it was serendipity, because I do see these as part of the same family. I mean, they're great. They're great bibliographies. They're great catalogs, and they've got almost exactly the same color. You, 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 you know that you humble me by saying that, but that is, I mean, Landy's catalog. I don't care where I go in the world. I'm, I'm proud to say to any other bibliophile, there is no better catalog than that one. Uh, I agree with you, uh, and it makes and me proud to be Canadian. Absolutely, and I can't believe I never noticed that before, but you're absolutely right about the color. I don't think Laura knows when it's got it. I maybe said something to her about it. I, I doubt that she has ever seen it, or if she has, she hasn't made the connection. So this is serendipity. It's, uh, you know, Laura was thinking water and blue, and uh, that was kind of a starting point, and, and it went from there. Yeah, it sends shivers down your spine. That's so cool. So cool. I know I hadn't noticed that. So, okay, when I get home tonight, I know what I got to do. <laughs> well, in fact, you've uh, you did. Uh, let's see. We're just winding down here. You did uh, produce five clamshells. That, that's right. This perhaps is an opportunity just to quickly bring up. And you uh, reference him in the acknowledgments, Aram from uh, from Winnipeg. You he tattooed monograms on leather inserts, and what exactly? And black ink tattoo with blue cloth lining. What exactly is going on with that? So this is a series of five clamshells that I've been using to hold not, not so much ephemera, but uh, the smaller. The smaller publications, some of the books are, are very small. They're only, you know, 15 or 20 pages. They're octavo size, uh, just with paper wraps. So they get destroyed on the shelf. So things like that I pulled out and, and keep separate in these clamshells. As you know, collections grow and then I needed more room. So that's where I got into the discussion about having these clamshells. The, the clamshells themselves were made by Keith Felton in Georgetown. But the, the design and the covering of the clamshells is done in uh, full leather calf there's no color it's just the natural calf and Aram is a tattoo artist and he has found a way to be able to tattoo leather so all of the illustrations on the leather on the clamshells has been tattooed in black ink and then there's a little monogram inside and Aram and I were back and forth over the design and how to how to illustrate it because the clamshells when they're folded and sitting on the shelf you see the five spines that is an illustration of a, of, a, of a stone arch bridge over a river, over a creek, and, and you, you see all of the bridge in the five spines. But when you open up the clamshells, they, they stretch uh, from end to end as you line them up, and they, they represent the, the path of a river. 
so this starts in the mountains in the uh, on the left left-hand side of the the image of the clamshells and and the river flows out of the mountains streams flowing out of the mountains into the valleys and, and providing irrigation water and, and farms and, and towns along the way and eventually going into the sea which is on the right hand side it was a very happy project because it happens to be an art style that Aaron is very much in touch with. He, he works in that medieval look, if I can call it that, or a Renaissance look. So it's it's very much his style of art. It corresponds with the age and the, 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 the content of the books. Because the books that I have that are in these clamshells, it's the art of that time. And, and so he's basically taking a modern spin on that. And then the leather, once, once the design was finished, the leather went back to Keith in Georgetown and he assembled the, the clamshells, which is a, a stroke of masterwork in itself because Keith had to make sure that they line up as he stretched the leather onto the boxes because he has to get them to work as a long group. They all have to line up, but he also has to have them line up when they sit as just five closed clamshells on the shelf. So it was very collaborative between myself in terms of what I wanted to look to be and the, and the, the purpose of these, Aram's artwork, case talent, putting them together. I'm, I'm going back to your Canadian connection again. I, I feel I have something that is very Canadian, very 2022, but it's housing something that's very old and keeping it together as a collection. And I think that is just the, the happiest marriage of the artists and the craftsmen that were involved to make that happen. Well, and you've given it such a lovely prominence in your catalog. And again, it's it's paying tribute to Robert Reed and, and the, the fabulous Landy bibliography, because there are so many pullout pages in that. Both sides of, uh, are pullouts, so it, it gives you a lovely sort of panoramic view. Absolutely. Okay, well, I'm going to just finish off again on this Canadian theme. I'm going to go back to our friend uh, Terry Julian. First of all, he talks about the progress of civilization has been due to systematized knowledge. The progress of each of us can only be secured by systematized knowledge book collecting helps to facilitate this process. You should treasure your books because they express accumulated wisdom. And finally, he quotes uh, Christopher Morley from his haunted bookshop. And he has a bookseller saying, books contain the thoughts and dreams of mankind, its hopes and strivings. It's in books that most of us learn how splendidly worthwhile life is. And allow me to say that this conversation has, has been splendidly worthwhile. I agree. It has been worthwhile. It has been a lot of fun going through this discussion. You've, uh, you've taken me in directions I didn't think we were going to go, and that's been fun. So thank you for that. It's, it's my sincere pleasure.